You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and in this episode, my co-hosts and I will step into the role of jurors, set to deliberate and indeed deliver a verdict. Granted, uh, this is not a situation of life and death. We are four, not twelve, and hopefully none of us are uh, particularly angry. So attempting to keep our heads cool, and it will be interesting to see if there will be any clashes here today, as I'm not 100% sure on exactly where my co-hosts stand. We will dive into everything, 12 angry men, search for weaknesses and flaws, if we can find any, and unpack how a film set almost entirely in one room, and almost entirely driven by dialogue, can have, and arguably should, be heralded as a cinematic masterpiece. If there's anyone listening who has somehow not yet seen 12 Angry Men, the story is as simple as its setting. 12 jurors in a murder case, all men, go to deliberate and decide if the accused is guilty or not guilty. Intriguingly, we see or hear nothing from the actual case. The film leaves this blank. As we start with the judge's instruction, the camera pans over the jurors, and we get a short shot of the young man on trial. That's it. Our jurors enter the jury room where they will decide the man's fate. And everyone, essentially absolutely everyone, appears to be certain he did it. Well, except one man. Juror 8, played by Henry Fonda, who has doubts. And this is where the film lingers. Reasonable doubt as the men, with all their baggage and prejudices, clash over 90 minutes. And it's just captivating from start to finish. It's so captivating, in fact, that we ourselves will step into the film's very case, assume the roles as jurors, and see if we would have believed the suspect to be guilty going in, and at what point, if at any point, we would have changed our mind. Yes, uh, this story has been remade so many times. Indeed, even by the film we'll be discussing today, because just to be clear, this is Sidney Lumet's 1957 version. The original was a 1954 teleplay. So why not just try it ourselves? This time the abridged podcast version. Oh, and uh, going back to that 1954 original, both Adam and I saw it just last week. So comparisons will probably be made. Anyways, it's time to bring in my three absolutely wonderful co-hosts. Adam, Mathieu, and Saul, or should I say juror number two, three, and four. Um, No, juror eight this time, I'm afraid. And I think it would be very fitting to start this episode with just a preliminary vote, just as in the film itself, to see where we stand. So, would you say that 12 Angry Men is guilty of being one of the greatest films of all time? Well, that's an interesting way to frame the question, Chris, because I do think Trenvagman is pretty great. I don't know that it's guilty <laughs> in the sense that uh, some films are guilty of being the greatest in that their reputation <laughs> means that it's really hard to appreciate them. Or to, I mean, Citizen Kane, we did a podcast on Vertigo, right? These are films that really suffer from their um, reputation. And I feel like Trenvagman doesn't, right? It's just considered to be great and... That's it, really. Uh, like, I don't feel like there's a lot of controversy around it, or of people being disappointed by it. Do I think 12 Angry Men is one of the greatest films of all time? I'd say yes, it is. It's sort of one of those films where you actually forget how good it is. When I first got into cinema, you know, it's one of those 
I guess, entry-level film, so to speak. And it was instant, you know, five-star film for me. But until, you know, I actually went back and re-watched it uh, recently for this podcast, I didn't realize, you know, just how great it is. So, yeah, I do think it's an absolutely fantastic film. I don't know if it deserves to be in the letterbox at IMDb top 10 of all time, but I do think it's one of the 200 greatest films ever made. Well, for me, it was the first film I saw, like an older film that I saw that I loved, and it was kind of the breakthrough into me watching a, a lot of a lot of older films, a lot of foreign films. It was kind of the first one that I really loved. I said for a long time it's my favorite film. It's probably probably still is, or at least in the top five. And I think it's a very straightforward film, an accessible film for most people. And although I say straightforward, I, I mean straightforward in terms of quite simple to follow, but I think it's actually got a lot more, it's, you know, it's a lot more complex than that. It's a lot more of a psychological study. Definitely. And, and I too would uh, join the choir and say that this is a great film and uh, certainly on the extended list of greatest films of all time for me as well, just as with uh, Saul. I do think your point, Mathieu, was interesting in that it may not be one of those films that are haunted by the perception of its greatness, and that might be accurate. I mean, while it has been consistently at the top of the INDB Top 250, it's lower in Sight and Sound list, for instance, and uh, they should pictures, don't they? And for some reason, this film doesn't have that kind of controversy that Citizen Kane and Vertical sometimes propel. Everyone just seems to, like you said, like it. It has a, it's almost unique in that it's one of those films that you just struggle to find the tractors for. So that might be one of those things to be breaking down a little bit later as well, just figuring out why it's so hard to not like or love 12 Angry Men. But expanding on what you were just saying there, Adam, and considering how all of us place this film as great, what is it about it that makes it so special and makes it stand out in this way? Oh, that's a difficult question to answer, but I think for me, it's kind of like a study of humanity. You've got one guy, you know, Juror 8, who does a not guilty vote, and then I think throughout the film, you gradually see everyone's different prejudices reveal. You see why people are voting guilty, and I think every single character, you see a different kind of flaw and a different thing that might make them biased, and it's sort of revealing society in general through 12 different characters basically and i think everyone i've recommended the film to lots of people and there's not one person who hasn't come back and said they think it that they like it a lot so i think it's kind of universal i guess yeah adam you you kind of touch on on two things that make the film special one of them is how accessible it is it's really one of the entry points i think for many into older films that and Hitchcock. I mean, it's it's kind of, I mean, a few other films as well, but it's kind of the thing you can recommend and feel pretty sure that people are going to enjoy it. Except for some people, but you always have exceptions, right? But it's it's generally a pretty agreeable film, I guess. And the other thing is how well it does, despite being essentially a play. A lot of films have trouble with that, except in getting the the recognition, right? The, the kind of acclaim that Traveling Women gets because they are not seen as cinematic. And of course, that's that really shows how Lumet really manages to use the space in a cinematic way, uh, despite being very restrained, of course, by uh, constraint, I mean, by, by the space uh, at his disposal. In addition to what my co-hosts have said, which I agree with, I think probably the biggest thing about 12 Angry Men is it's a film about justice and justice getting done. And those sort of films just seem to be very powerful in general, uh, whether it be something going from, you know, a vigilante-type action film to crime dramas to courtroom dramas. It just seems to be, in general, it's a very universal thing, like watching a story where justice is done, justice is served at the end. So I think it's quite powerful and also because all the characters change. I mean, actually, maybe not Henry Fonda's character, but otherwise all the other 11 jurors all change throughout the course of the film. So it's also a film where there's lots of character progression and they don't all think the same thing the whole time. They all gradually change. And I think it's quite powerful also. But I think it's just the justice thing. I think justice is a very universal theme. And I think when a film does justice well, 
I think, yeah, it's got a lot of appeal to quite a wide audience. I think you're perfectly right there, Sol, in that it's probably the quest for justice and this idea of justice that makes it stand out to so many people as there's just nothing that can really irk people. Everyone likes justice. But one of the things that really stands out to me uh, in 12 Angry Men is that this is a film made in the midst of the Hayes era. And within that corner, within the films made, there was typically a great degree of certainty. You had to know who the killer was and the killer had to be punished, usually by being killed or arrested. There had to be a message that crime does not pay, and it was very rare that there was ambiguity. And while justice is certainly one of the themes that will probably make this film uh, stand out and engage with people around the world, uh, the ambiguity was the thing that really gripped me, because even as the film ends, we can't be absolutely sure that the accused is innocent. Just as the court system, it's uh, guilty or not guilty, not guilty or innocent. And while the jurors talk about the evidence and find the evidence flimsy, there's no culprit found. This is not a police investigation. The actual murderer, if it's not this accused man, is never arrested. <laughs> and throughout the film, we don't know what the truth is. The characters don't know what the truth is. Henry Fonda, who is the juror who says, not guilty first. He's not saying he's certain the young man is innocent or not guilty. He's saying he has doubts and he wants to talk about it before convicting uh, this man. And that's what's so powerful here because that doubt is investigated, it's confronted, and throughout it we'll never know the absolute truth of the matter, just as in most court cases. And that's that doubt is a very powerful uh, feeling. Oh, and adding to that, that I'm sure we'll discuss, it's the cinematic qualities to this film, which I, I have to be honest, I I've seen videos and the constructions of 12 Angry Men over many years, essentially, where they show the great usage of group shots, the long takes, how they go from group shots to close-ups to back to group shots or over the shoulder within the same take with just absolute impeccable skill and craft. But when watching it and even trying to look out for it, I couldn't because the story and the dialogue and the emotions are just so consuming. And I think that is also one of the reasons why 12 Angry Man is so great because you just get so consumed by it and while the, the craft is impeccable and it's beautiful and we'll break it down a little bit more later just wow the fact that you're not even focusing on it it really is in some ways the perfect classic Hollywood movie where the craft was meant to simply be invisible and Sidney Lumet coming from TV, this was his debut feature film, uh, delivering a film with this degree of mastery. That is just almost unbelievable to me. It's one of the best debuts of all time. As the jury foreman, I suppose, uh, I, I can uh, move this discussion along and, and, and essentially just pull us into the case itself. So uh, I would be really interesting to, interested to hear about your perception of the case itself. 11 out of 12 of the men going into that jury room thought the accused guilty. Now, obviously, we didn't see the trial, but this gets summations of what happened in the case. Did you believe, based on the summations, based on the discussions early on, that the accused was guilty? Or, or did you, because of being aware of movie magic, etc., just figure that that would not be the outcome in, in the movie? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious to anyone watching this really early on that what the structure of the film is going to be is that Fonda is going to convince them. I mean, I guess maybe you could have a twist, but I mean, there's no, there's no drama otherwise. I, I think it's pretty obvious where it's going to go fairly early on. As to whether or not I was convinced of his innocence, do you mean early on or, or, or later on? In the early stages. I guess the early stages, it's hard to have a strong opinion just because you, you haven't seen 
the trial, right? You, you kind of get the trial brought to you in little bits and pieces uh, throughout. So no, I guess I don't. I wasn't particularly convinced he was guilty early on. No, I, I, su- I suppose not because the film gives you the main point of the accusation. But you're watching a movie. You know it's more complex than that. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's difficult to make a judgment early on on whether he's guilty or not because all the evidence that we hear is coming through the jurors with all their biases. So we're not getting to hear a kind of objective summary of the facts. I also think in many ways it doesn't really matter if the viewer thinks the defendant is guilty or not. It doesn't really matter in some ways if he is guilty or not, the defendant. I think it's more about seeing the character flaws and seeing how one man is able to show each character why their thinking is wrong. Yeah, essentially, I don't think it matters if I think he's guilty or not when I'm watching it at the start of the film. I think that's just a side note, kind of. I also think Juror 8 is not saying this man is definitely innocent. It's not like he's doing a big emotional plea. And I think the film would would be much worse if Juror 8 was going in saying he's definitely innocent. You guys are completely wrong. I think the fact that he is the only kind of neutral character, whereas everyone else has a stronger opinion, we don't really know what Juror 8 thinks. He's not saying the guy is not guilty. So I think that adds a lot to it, that he's sort of being more neutral and trying to foster a discussion rather than being very emotional. Because I feel like some other films, which aren't as good, would have would, would have Juror 8 being very emotional, fighting against them, saying that this character is innocent. I think that's very well put, Adam. It is definitely a more powerful film because Henry Fonda isn't going out there, you know, like demanding, you know, this kid is innocent. The way it puts it across is in a yeah, very neutral, very you know, almost amicable sort of way, which I think helps it to be more convincing. You know, I find myself, if somebody's trying to argue something with me, instant reaction is to get all defensive, where if somebody just puts out a more questioning sort of way, I think it can be more convincing. I also do agree that what we think going in is probably not that important. Although, of course, the best films out there are the films that make you think one thing and then are able to totally twist it around and make you think something else. I mean, that's what makes for very powerful cinema. In terms of whether I thought the accused was guilty or not, I don't know. You know, I'd love to go back 20 years ago and do this podcast 20 years ago when I first saw the film because I can't remember honestly what I was thinking when I first sat down to watch the film. Upon rewatching the film, I do think it's actually fairly obvious or it's fairly well telegraphed from very early on that he's innocent because before we actually see the jurors go into the jury room, there's a very long, lethargic dissolve over of the kid's face. You like see his sad, mournful face and the camera lingers on him. You've got this very gradual dissolve to the jury room afterwards. And that shot to me is really Lumet telling us from very early on that this kid is innocent. So for me, I think is quite well conveyed early on. But the magic of the film is seeing all the other characters eventually jump to this conclusion that Lumet already hints at from quite early into the film. Isn't there also a message, even with them finding him not guilty, it will go to a retrial and he will probably be found guilty by a different set of men? I think that was kind of mentioned in the film, correct me if I'm wrong. But I think you have to remember, this is the 1950s in America, what racism would have been like, what the kind of what society would have been like in general. So I agree with Saul that, that he will have been innocent. And I think they gradually went through all the different evidence and showed all the different flaws. And I think... The arguments were convincing. But I also think there was a message that had it not been for Juror 8, he would have been found guilty. And if you put another 12 men in that room, he probably would have been found guilty by them, regardless of if he was guilty or not. What they actually do say in the film, because you are sort of right about that, they said that if they claim they're a hung jury, then they're going to have to put in 12 other men to retry the kid. But what I was thinking of when I was watching the film, is that even though they get to the end of the movie, and this shouldn't be a spoiler, I hope not, or we can edit for spoilers later, even though they get to the end of the film, 
and you know they're all convinced that he's innocent they put in their verdict what i was thinking back my head is surely the prosecution will put in for a retrial so i don't know if it is quite the happy ending and i'm jumping forward a little bit that we think it might be it's double jeopardy if i'm not guilty you can't be retried oh Okay, yeah, sorry, yeah, America's different to Australia. You know, you're actually right about the double jeopardy thing because there was that film in 1999 um, made about that. So, yeah, America's got different laws to Australia. In Australia, you actually can be refound guilty for the exact same crime. So that's a good point, Chris, and that's interesting because I'm not sure how double jeopardy works in other countries. Well, I guess they could appeal, right, I think, but they couldn't retry yeah, actually, I think that's what I was thinking, like an appeal. I'll put in an appeal or whatever, and you'll get another jury. I don't know if, as the jury, they actually put in their reasons why they think he's innocent. They're just saying that he's innocent. So I don't know if, you know, a judge would be that convinced by it. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how all the American politics work. I know it's just sort of turning into a lawnmower podcast. <laughs> Jurors don't have to get reasoning. They're finding sticks. If they say he's not guilty, he's not guilty. I think if there's new evidence found, it's possible to retry, but I'm not sure about America and other countries, yes, but I think even other countries, if you're found not guilty, I'm not sure if you actually can retry them without any new evidence at all. Do you, do you think you can't appeal? I mean, I guess I, guess I don't know. But... I don't think prosecution can appeal. I've never oh, heard okay. of that before. Okay. Uh, okay. Right, only the defense can. I guess that makes sense. Okay. We should have had a lawyer on this episode. That would have been a good idea to have a legal perspective. <laughs> So yeah, just to clear it up, uh, in the US, the prosecution does not have the right to appeal. Okay, okay. But I, I think one of the interesting questions that this film poses, uh, you, you said early on, that, uh, Adam, that to you the film is about justice. I, I guess I agree. I mean, it is uh, very obviously so. But I think what I find interesting about the film is not so much the, the, that aspect of it. It's more the groupthink aspect or the I mean, groupthink is a very pejorative term, but the way that in which your thoughts right, can change by being confronted by other people and how being in a group does affect that. Because I think the main example in the pejorative way would be that the ad executive, right? The, the madman guy uh, who is clearly just like a leaf in the wind, right? He, he's going to go wherever everyone else goes. He has basically nothing in his head, it seems. And he's, he's just going to with whoever is, is the majority, essentially. And you kind of have this a bit with everyone. Henry Fonda is so heroic precisely because he kind of stands alone. And then gradually the, the momentum shifts and, and that brings everyone with him. But it's also, I think, something that's very relevant today. When you start uh, having arguments with real people who are being reasonable and have an opposing opinion to yours, you have to kind of consider them in a way that you don't if you just are not confronted with them, right? And, and that's kind of what this conceit of the jury brings you. It brings you people who would not otherwise be confronted to each other and who are. And I think that idea is particularly relevant today with, you know, how opinions are forged without being in contact, in direct contact with other people. I think it was actually Saul who mention justice because I don't actually think 12 Angry Men is about justice so much. For me, that's not the main theme. I think it's more of a character study. I know the same director did The Verdict, which is another film that I think is great. I think The Verdict is a film which is about justice, where we have a very clear-cut kind of case of what who is right and who is wrong. I think 12 Angry Men is much more of a character study. And like you said, it's about bringing these people together who wouldn't normally be together, seeing how they interact, seeing different backgrounds. Even if we all think he's innocent, I don't think the message of the film is this person is definitely innocent. I think it's much more about the kind of group mentality, how things gradually change as more and more people say innocent. I think it got harder and harder for each person to maintain their position of not guilty as the group gradually moved towards one position. So I think it's much more a study of people and a study of characters than it is a film about saying one this character is innocent. And I think that's why Juror 8 is not explicitly saying this man is innocent. Instead, he's saying, let's examine all the facts. I think they avoid it being a film driven by kind of emotion and justice, and it's a lot more logical and about characters. I probably should clarify that I don't think the film is about justice per se or not justice first and foremost, 
But I think the justice theme is what makes it so universally appealing. The films that tend to be crowd pleasers, and I know that's an odd term to use for this film, which is almost 65 years old. It's an, an odd term to use, but I would say that the justice theme of it is what makes it universal. What makes it appealing to a lot of people is seeing justice served. Somebody has been innocent has been left off, so there's been no miscarriage of justice. And I just think that theme itself is everything out of the way. The vigilante superhero films uh, have got a lot of universal appeal also. I think just films where you see the bad people have things happen to them, the innocent people get left off, everybody's happy at the end of it. I mean, it's not like a hunky-dory happy ending, but it's just the fact that the film has that sort of, you know, positive, upbeat vibe, the whole idea that justice can be carried forward and through talking out things, we can actually see somebody whose innocence get left off the hook. I think that's what makes the film appealing. I think it is definitely mostly about group mentality. I agree with that, about all these people eventually changing their minds and different circumstances beyond it. And I think actually probably one of the most appealing things also is how little a lot of the jurors care about the verdict at the start of the film. We've got so many of them. They just want to get to the ball game, just want to get out of there. They don't want to be there any longer. But by the end of the film, all of them are actually all really, really focused and really intent on wanting to see justice served. So I think it's an important part of it. It's an appealing theme, but no one say the film is primarily about justice. Yeah, just despite what I said before, actually, what you said then made a lot of sense, and I agree with you. I think that's why it's universal, because the general idea of justice, the fact that it looks like the system works, they finally got to the right decision. I agree with that. I think it's just, I guess my point is just, I think they did it in a much more subtle way and a much more effective way, whereas some films, from the start, we know someone is innocent, and then... It's a kind of big emotional kind of fight to prove that. And then you know what's going to happen at the end. You know he's going to be found innocent. Whereas I think 12 Angry Men, whilst that theme made it more appealing, I think they did it in a much smarter way and in a much more realistic way, which made the film a lot better than had they said explicitly, this man is innocent at the start, for example. So I take it you guys are fully convinced, fully certain that he is innocent? Uh, Yes. I'm not. Yeah, I know, Chris, but uh, I'm asking Adam and so <laughs> <laughs> What do you think, first of all? I think the most likely explanation, if there is any, is that he's guilty. I mean, it's, I think it's he's more likely to be guilty than a random person. I do think the verdict should be not guilty, right? It's not, the evidence is not compelling enough. But I am not convinced that an innocent man has been freed at the end of the film. I agree with you that not guilty was the right verdict. They say quite clearly that the lawyer he had wasn't very good either. So I don't think he had a very fair trial. I think not guilty was the right verdict. I guess my heart says that he is innocent, but in my head it's not as certain as that. For me personally, the film works so much better because you're not certain that in my, I'm not certain he's innocent. Even though I kind of feel, if I had to say now, after, you know, at the end of the film, if I had to say my position, I would say he's not guilty. And I'd say he, he probably didn't do it. But I think the film is so much better because you're not really 100% convinced. It's more like reality, because in reality, there's a, there must be millions of cases where people aren't, no one knows 100%. The mm-hmm. fact that we don't know, it's not explicit, we don't know 100%, I just think that makes it a much more fascinating film. So I, in the end, I would say that he's innocent, but I'm certainly not 100% convinced. I think that's exactly the point. I, I lean more towards uh, Matthew Eder in that I think it's, there's a very good chance that he is guilty, but the evidence is not conclusive and that not guilty is probably the right verdict. Though it would be interesting to dive into whether or not any of you would have been your eight. Like, would you have had, shall we say, the guts to look at 11 other people and say that you're not sure? I think when I was younger, I wouldn't have been able to do it. But I'd like to think if I was in that situation now, and after like one minute, everyone's like, yeah, he's guilty. I'd like to think that actually now, I probably would be able to do it because 
I have like a strong sense of kind of justice and not in terms of legal cases, but in general. And I think if I had doubts in my mind and everyone was deciding instantly he's guilty, I'd like to think that now I could do it. But certainly, I think if I was like 10, 10 years ago, maybe, I, I don't think I would have been able to. I, I don't know. I've never been in a jury. I guess I don't, I don't know exactly how they work now. If, if it really works like that, I'm, I'm not really convinced. <laughs> but I, I guess I would have resisted, but I don't think I would have been successful in convincing the other jurors. <laughs> that's what I would say. I, th- I, think, I think if I'm Henry Fonda, we get a hung jury. <laughs> that, that's, that's my answer. What about you, Sal? Yeah, look, I'd probably agree with Mature there. I'd probably voice my reasons, but I'll mm. probably get bullied into just agreeing with the majority. Sort of like peer pressure the movie. So it, it, it does take a lot to stand up against other people. Mm. And I think I definitely would have been able to put my voice forward. But I don't know if I'd be able to convince people. You know, he has the thing where he actually tells them, let's take another vote. If nobody else changes their mind, I'll change my vote to guilty. Mm. I think if I did that, I don't think we'll have an old man there siding with me. <laughs> I think I'll have everybody um, re-voting and I'll end up losing the case. Yeah, that was quite the gamble. And uh, it's probably one of the most emotional moments in the film. And I, I think that what makes it interesting is that at that point, he's just had it relatively... He didn't even put all his guns on the table, essentially, shall we say, a knife. That came, <laughs> that came later, no? Ah, I'm not sure. Is it, isn't it right after the knife? I don't remember now. What I was going to say as well, um, just building on what people were saying about if they were Henry Fonda in that film, I think I could have done what Henry Fonda did in terms of saying not guilty when everyone else says guilty. But I think where I would have fallen down would have been if people were starting to change their votes, I think I would have got too emotional when you're realizing one guy is racist, one guy is whatever, mm-hmm. I don't think I could have been calm and rational in the same way that Henry Fonda was. So I think I would have, I think I could have started off the process, but I think I would have failed because I would have started getting too annoyed at people and not. <laughs> the reason it worked so well was because Juror 8 stays so calm. You listen to the guy, he's, he's almost like a judge you know he's almost like a neutral kind of person and you listen to him because he's so calm and rational and logical so everything he says you're starting to listen to him process everyone else is getting angry and emotional but he's the one person so it's called 12 angry men but essentially it's really 11 angry men there's even less yeah the foreman is very calm it's probably like four or five angry men really (laughs) they lied to us (laughs) maintaining the sort of sense of not being one of the angry men would have been my problem because (laughs) i think if you are able to argue with someone who's being racist or someone Mm. who's being prejudiced if you are able to argue without getting emotional and without kind of going to their level you ha- it has it's very powerful. Whereas if someone is being racist or something, and you're getting emotional and angry back at them, you kind of lose your position as a kind of neutral, fair observer. So I think that's where I would have fallen down because if I started to get convinced of his innocence, I'd be like, "Why the hell are you still saying he's guilty?" You know, it'd be that's where I think, and that's where maybe in twenty years I could do it. But I think that's my over my lifetime. I've gone probably from 10 years ago, I couldn't have said not guilty, whereas now I could say not guilty. And maybe in another 10 years, I could follow it through and be less emotional and angry in response to the other angry men. <laughs> well, that, that's a beautiful statement, Adam, in many ways, because essentially 12 Angry Men is such a powerful film that you try to fit your personal growth to becoming its protagonist. I think that's why I love the film so much, because, I mean, I'm always fascinated by the idea of when the four of us would have changed Yes, exactly. Yes, I was going to say. I think you want to come to that anyway, but I think there's also probably people watching it who can identify with different characters. Mm-hmm. And there's, there might even be people who have prejudices. I mean, everyone has some kind of prejudice. There's probably people watching it who can identify even with some of the negative qualities of some of the characters. I've said enough, but yeah, I think we have to change the name of the film anyway. <laughs> Yeah, four angry men, three angry men, two angry men. It would, <laughs> it would be interesting to see, actually, which juror would you identify with? That's a good question. One of the quiet ones, right? Because you say <laughs> angry men. Um, I, I, I think it's actually pretty representative of how loud people tend to take over 
right? Yes. I mean, in the end, the silent people matter because they vote. The, the guy who saves mm. when he makes his gambit, right? he's, he's pretty silent. Mm. I guess I would be like one of the more silent ones. I'm trying to think. The, the, the thing is, it's hard to really identify the, the racial element, which is pretty important in this case. A lot of the quiet guys are immigrants, and, and that clearly or at, are people who maybe their parents were immigrants. And, and that clearly plays a part in how they perceive the case as it evolves, right? Because that's what Fonda does successfully is essentially he guilts everyone into voting not guilty. <laughs> the, the deciding factor is when that guy has this really racist rant. And that's because all of a sudden it becomes clear to everyone that voting guilty makes you a bad person because you're associating with them. It's completely reversal of perception. I'm not, I'm not sure I'd really have an answer. I think the characters mm. are specific enough that it's hard for me to really identify with one in particular. Mm. Lumet kind of makes you a 13th juror. Ooh. The way he introduces you into the room, mm -hmm. the camera, it's a really long take, I think, early on. And the camera kind of wanders around. You, you see the guys kind of talking about the baseball game, talking about the weather. You kind of feel like you're in the room with them, right? I, th I think in that sense, you feel like a participant in some way. Just something I was going to say was, I kind of feel like the quieter people in the film had the bigger impact. All the angry, loud people are the ones, as the film goes on, I think the angrier and louder a person is, the more the characters turn against them and stop listening to them. And I don't know if anyone's seen the remake, I think it was 1997. The 1997 remake is quite faithful, but... One thing they change is the anger is much, much bigger. So the characters are more angry. I genuinely, there's a much stronger sense of anger. Like just talking about the title, I, I think that made it slightly weaker because they just made, not every character was angrier, but there was like mm. storming out the room into like this bathroom bit and there was people shouting so much more. Whereas even in 12 Angry Men, the, the actual angry men, the loud ones, they're not constantly shouting and shouting throughout the film. They're doing sort of isolated rants. Mm. But I think 1997 ramped up the anger a lot more. But I think the one we're talking about, 57, I don't think they needed it to be 12 angry men because I think the atmosphere gave us everything we needed without everyone having to shout like crazy all the time. I have seen the 997 version. Not that recently, not to be able to recall any finer details. I just remember liking Jack Lemmon's performance in it. I have definitely seen the film as a play, though, and that was very interesting because that was definitely a lot louder and a lot angrier. And I guess play acting is different to film acting. It needs to be more theatrical because you're sort of casting out to a whole audience of people around you. So they need to be able to hear you. They need to be able to get the emotions in without having close-ups of faces, which, of course, Lumet could do. If you're sitting at the back of a theatre, you can't do. So, yeah, I just recall seeing the play version of it, and I guess maybe not so much being disappointed, but maybe just surprised at how less effective it was, and especially the juror who keeps going on about the, his son or whatever, the last one, who they managed to convince. The act really didn't do much for me at all because it was theatrical. But then again, of course, the whole film is based on a stage play, so I don't know, it's just sort of interesting how it's evolved a little bit, but I guess the 57 version is a heralded classic, I guess, for a reason, because like you said, Lumet manages to turn the anger down and yet still keep a really powerful, claustrophobic film. And who, anybody who's actually seen any of Lumet's filmography, you know, that's what he specialised in. Closed room, tight, tense films, Think about anything from Death Trap, even Dog Day Afternoon, all those single location tight room thrillers is where Lumet talents really lie as a director. Well, Chris and I actually watched, I think, I don't know if Chris just watched it, but Chris and I discussed the play last week or a couple of weeks ago. And I think what's really noticeable, obviously it's a shorter runtime. The, the play kind of goes from, here's one important scene, directed to the next one, directed to the next one, directed to the next one, and there's kind of nothing in between. It just jumps instantly from each important scene. Whereas I think in 1957, the bits in between the kind of important moments are sort of just as important as setting the atmosphere. So the, the way the characters act in between really significant scenes. And I think they also use like the kind of heat of the room really well. 
but I don't think they really use it that much in the play. But in the 1957 one, there's a whole like sense that the room is very hot. Yeah, they're opening the windows, and that's kind of like symbolizing the tension in the room. So I think the way that they use that is also really powerful. Completely right. It's so fascinating that the screenplay was obviously written for this teleplay. One hour in total with adverts, I think just 50 minutes without the adverts. And the 57 version is 90 minutes, so almost double the runtime. Having watched the 57 version first, the original feels so abridged. Everything's it's cut. I mean, it's not cut because it wasn't there, but like you said, there's no heat. That's entirely removed. The sports game is removed. Essentially, all uh, character motivations uh, are removed. Most of the characters, the side characters, the smaller, quiet jurors, have essentially no personality or voice behind very small cues. So in the 57 versions, you get a little bit of backstory on all of them. You get to know what they do. You get to know how they think. You get all these little conversations between them. You get driving impulses. You get personal conflict. And in the 54 version, it's mostly just the portions of the case they are discussing. It's almost verbatim. Very little is actually changed from the original uh, screenplay. A few tweaks here and there. They still turn on the racist, etc. But it's just point by point by point by point. Obviously, it's live. It's a teleplay. It was shot as they were doing it. But the contrast is night and day. So, so I think it really just speaks to the power of a slightly higher budget, a po- the power of Lumet's direction, and just how the same fairly powerful screenplay just didn't work as well there. Chris, what happens again in the teleplay when Juror 10, you know, like the xenophobic racist one, because obviously in, in 1957, I think, one of the most powerful scenes is when Juror 10 is going on a big rant about races and stuff, and he's and then everyone starts turning away, like physically start turning away from him, so he's just left shouting at no one. I can't remember if they do that exactly in the teleplay, because one thing I wanted to mention was the, the remake in the 1990s. They completely changed that scene, and I think the 1957 version that scene where he's going on a huge rant and everyone turns against him, I think is one of the best scenes in the whole film in the, in the 90s version, they change it so that it doesn't happen at all. So it's not people turning against him. He doesn't change his mind. He changes his vote to not guilty, not because he's changed his opinion just because he wants to get out. So he turns into like the baseball character from the fifties version. And I couldn't believe they did that because to me, that scene is like the way to deal with such horrible opinions is to turn away from the people and not give them a voice it was so powerful and i couldn't believe they changed it in the 90s one i can't quite remember i i don't think they did it exactly like that in the teleplay yeah that's actually one of the most interesting changes because we haven't even mentioned the dynamic yet but all of these films it's uh, the main show is your eight versus your three so you have henry fonda who is passionately arguing that the accused may not be guilty and then you have Lee J. Cobb as Juror 3 who is the angriest man in the room perhaps uh, without counting the, the racist and it's mainly the conflict between the two of them that drive the story onwards and one of the things I loved about the 57 version is that when this happened and all of these characters stand up and turn their backs, Jury number three is one of the people who stands up and turns their back. In the original version, he's one of the very few people who remains sitting down. I think, in fact, Jury three is one of the first people who stand up because he's just so disgusted by this man, even if or perhaps even because they're ostensibly on the same side. So that's a really powerful moment of nuance. It shows that his Eurometry's character uh, as well, while that's just completely missing in the 54 version. So that's definitely a really powerful change. Yeah, and I think the fact that Juror 3, there is a kind of sympathetic portrayal of him towards the end. The fact that you see his emotions, how upset he is about his son, 
Mm, I think yes. that's another part of it. They're not. There's. I don't think the film is really portraying it as this character is good, this character is bad. I think it's much more. They are all flawed, but for the most part, maybe aside from like the racist juror, yeah. um, for the most part, they are showing that everyone has good and bad. And even if they have like views you disagree with, they they kind of show you. They kind of explain to you why the person feels like this and it's just a much more interesting character study than simply saying this man is like bad this man is good yeah yeah, i I completely agree and in the original teleplay during number three doesn't even have that kind of motivation or backstory he's just angry and thinks the accused is guilty at towards the end seemingly for no reason there's no reason why he was so morally outraged or angry so that's one of the things that the original is definitely lacking but getting back to uh, the 57 version and the case itself I-, I didn't mention earlier what i think i would have done in that situation or if i would have been henry fonda and while i probably would have voiced my opinion if I thought there was a chance the kid was not guilty, uh, I'm not convinced that I would have thought the kid was not guilty in the beginning because the amount of evidence suggesting he was guilty was so paramount. In the summarization, we hear that He had an argument with his father that was overheard by the neighbor. He told his father he would kill him. He left in anger. He went to a shop and he purchased a knife. The shopkeeper says this knife is rare and unique and identified it as the knife that was used to stab the father. Defendant himself claims to have lost the knife through a hole in his pocket. So he doesn't have his version of knife he purchased the night his father was killed. He claims that he was at the movies at the time that murder took place, but he doesn't remember the films he saw and no one remembers him. Uh, The old neighbor testifies that he saw the kid run away just after the murder. Uh, A neighbor across the street testifies that she saw the kid killed the father through the window, and this is someone who has known this young man his entire life. The amount of evidence is so seemingly conclusive that, unless I picked up on some of the clues Henry Fonda picked up during the case, I think I would have been firmly in the guilty camp going in. So it would be very interesting to hear where you changed your opinion Unless you thought he was not guilty, or would have voted not guilty from the beginning, at what point would you have voted not guilty? I think the most persuasive argument that Fonda makes is the whole thing with um, the train. Because he's really being effective there at discrediting the, the testimonies. Because they are saying, oh, we definitely heard this, we definitely heard that. And he proves pretty well that they cannot really be sure at all, and that they are clearly kind of recreating their memories because it makes sense, because it makes them part of the events, not necessarily because they're mean, right, but just that that their memories are clearly not trustworthy. To me, that's the, the, that's the turning point. That's the point where I would be convinced that not guilty is the right verdict, right, because there's really not enough evidence once you throw out the testimonies. I also think, I mean, the old man changes his opinion early on well he changes his vote to not guilty doesn't he but he's convinced by henry funder's argument for more discussion rather than he's I don't, he's not saying he's innocent either so i think there's also a discussion about would you change your vote to agree with henry funder and to give the opportunity for more discussion because i think that's what the old man does so i think early on the first couple are voting to get more discussion but i also think Building on what was said previously, so we see each member of the jury, we kind of see all their different flaws and all and why they changed their vote. But I think Henry Fonda, like you said, he kind of does the same with the witnesses. We kind of see here, here's the problems with the witness. This person couldn't have seen this. This person had glasses. This person couldn't walk very fast. You kind of see all, 
it's not prejudices. It's almost like a character assassination of all of them in terms of the way they're thinking or the way they've said things. Here's actually why it could be wrong. And I think it's just very effectively done so that you see every single witness, every single piece of evidence actually. And I think that worked really well. The point where I think I was probably entirely convinced was when he took out the knife. Just the whole dramatic way that was filmed was absolutely awesome. And I hadn't seen the film for, I guess, at least 10 years when I sat down and rewatched it a couple of weeks ago. And I just didn't quite remember how the knife had come out, just the way he produces it like that. Never seen one identical and puts it down there. For me, that was a real wake-up call that, hey, something strange is going on. Maybe this kid actually really is innocent. And, of course, the other great point, although by that point I was already convinced, is the point where Jura 3 says, I'm going to kill you. And Henry Fonda says, you don't really mean that, do you? So those points for me were probably the most convincing parts of it. See, I remembered the knife moment quite well out of the first time I saw it. And I remembered the first time I saw it uh, that I thought that it was kind of an overdramatic moment. Within the film, I don't mean necessarily as part of the actual uh, jury. I thought that was maybe a bit much. And watching it again, I think it works pretty well. I do think it's a pretty, probably outside of procedure that you would do that. I don't know. But it played better for me this time around. The only thing that doesn't play very well for me is the ending, that just a very short ending that's really triumphant music. I think that's not quite in line with how I read the movie. But yeah, I, I thought that moment, it's obviously very dramatic. But in general, Lumet kind of allows himself these very theatrical moments and he kind of earns them with these long takes early on, right? Because if you look at it, there's a lot of people standing up right as they're about to speak and then sitting down once they are done, which I don't think people really do. I, I, again, never been in a, in a jury, but I kind of doubt that people really do that that theatrically. And just generally, it's kind of part of this whole movement, Twelve Angry Men. In the 50s, you had all of these great play adaptations in American cinema. It's kind of this move towards more naturalistic acting, but still within a play setting. And I'm kind of thinking like of, of obviously of the, of the Tennessee Williams adaptations, but also like Marty, right? This very New York movies. I think one thing we haven't mentioned that much, you kind of touched on it with the other adaptations is how great the cast is here. I mean, Lee J. Cobb as the, the main antagonists is amazing, but just generally, it's just all great actors. And it's all of this kind of New York scene of actors at the time that were in, in a bunch of these movies. Uh, it's kind of, yes, also a film that's, you know, a time and a place, and that's why it works. And maybe that's why the remakes are not as good. I'll just mention over there that I do agree entirely on the ending mature. I don't think it's really the upbeat note that it ends on is really maybe the most powerful note the film could have ended on. But I guess, you know, that's a very minor detractor in what's ultimately a very powerful film. Something that I'll probably also just point out is that maybe my memory is not as good as mature, or maybe I just looked it up. It was actually 15 years since I last saw the film, so I guess maybe that's why the knife thing wasn't quite so vivid in my mind. I also agree with Mathieu uh, regarding uh, the cast, and in, in terms of where I would have changed my mind, I, I honestly would have taken me as long as Durer 4, probably, who, by the way, is a fairly underrated Durer, because, uh, at least to me, it feels like you have two reasonable people on both sides that are very concerned with the evidence and the logic of it. So you have Henry Fonda, Durer 8, on the side of... Uh, those who think he, the accused is not guilty, and you have Juror 4 on the side of the people who think he's guilty, because Juror 3, he gets angry, he loses his temper, he is essentially the titular angry man, he is the person who hogs up the most of the film with his screaming. Uh, meanwhile, you have the more quiet Juror 4 arguing for his case. At one point in the film, it's just Juror 4 and Juror 3 left, who believes the accused is guilty and everything has flipped in the beginning you had all of the people staring down henry fonda and then staring down henry fonda and the older man asking for their reasons for thinking the accused is not guilty and now suddenly you have henry fonda staring right at them saying that they're not convinced by their arguments and asking them to repeat them i think the moment where you're for realizes that the woman who watched him through the window wore glasses and wouldn't have had them on when this happened and finally changes his mind. That's the point where essentially reason 
goes out of the case of voting for guilty. And it's it's a very powerful moment. And I think, honestly, I would have been on the side of voting guilty up until that point as well, simply because it's a very powerful testimony and you had all of these other circumstantial evidence. Uh, so that that really would be the point where everything slipped because like I said earlier you had motive you had him saying he'd kill him you had two witnesses placing him on the scene you had the murder weapon it's so extensive but then suddenly that final piece of testimony is removed and it's a very very powerful moment of realization I think you make a great point about juror four because I think it's really important that one of the people who thinks that the um, defendant is guilty. I think it's really important that one of them is a very reasonable, logical man. I think if you ended up just with kind of really angry, racist guys or emotional guys, I think it would lose its impact. So I think regardless of if you thought the defendant was innocent or guilty, I think you kind of respect the juror for because his view was very principled, very based on logic. And actually, I think knowing you, Chris, I would have said you were juror for because I think you're fair, but you wouldn't have instantly changed your vote whereas i would probably be more like juror six the older guy i think i would have changed my vote to not guilty after henry fonda's arguments because i would have wanted there to have been a proper discussion not because i've changed my mind instantly i think i would have been more at juror six following on from henry fonda making sure there's a discussion whereas i think that you yeah you're very fair and a, a bit more logical about things i'm probably a bit more emotional but yeah, I think Juror 4 helped the film massively by showing a reasonable man. I think there's a point slightly later on in the film where the tide changes a little bit back towards guilty because Juror 4's arguments are so convincing. And I think there's a bit where, I think it's Juror 4, but I think there's a bit where he sums everything up again and the mood slightly changes until until eventually, obviously, it completely reverses back. Yeah, exactly. It's the one moment in the film where I think it's I think it's just Juror Twelve who changes his mind, but I'm not hundred percent sure. But at least Juror Twelve changed Juror Twelve changed his mind or less immediately. So it's uh, it, it's the one moment where it kind of shows that it could go either way. There's some kind of dynamics uh, still in play. Knowing movie magic, you, you you kind of assume where it's going to go, but there's still a central conflict that's not resolved. I also think for a couple of the characters, like the racist, like Juror 10, to me there's a sense that not everyone's actually changed their mind to not guilty. Some of them have just realised that the reason they're voting guilty is because they're prejudiced or because of their own background. In my opinion, not all 12 of them leave thinking he's innocent. It's just that their position, they realise that their own position is based on very flawed kind of thinking. For one or two of them, I think they change their mind on that basis, not because they explicitly think the person is innocent. And obviously there's a baseball guy who just, or football or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the baseball game is coming. You can't, uh, you can't be there then. <laughs> Again, I, that's why I find it so much more interesting because I don't think it's a simple case that all 11 get convinced by Henry Fonda because I don't yeah, yeah. think convinced it's just, if you're arguing, but I think it's done really powerfully because it's like someone's arguing this position and then actually they kind of break down and realize I'm voting this way because of the race of the person. I'm voting this way because of problems with my son. So maybe they don't change to innocent or not guilty, but they realize why they're voting guilty and they're not necessarily voting guilty based on the facts. If it was a film where everyone went from guilty to innocent and it was clear and clear cut and explicit, I just think it would be a far, far weaker film. And there's so many more complications to it that elevate it into such a fascinating kind of character study. Yeah, exactly. And there's pieces of evidence that still lingers that could indicate that he's guilty. I mean, for for me, the the big thing is still the knife. He bought a knife that's identical or very similar to the murder weapon, and he lost it the night of the murder. That's an extreme coincidence. You always have doubt. There's always doubt. Doubt exists in this movie, and it's one of those things that, even as the film ends, is still powerful, even even if we can be pretty sure that justice was done and that they voted not guilty based on the evidence being non-conclusive. Yeah, I don't I don't have much to say about this point, but what I was going to say was I, I've always liked the ending, the fact that they ask for each other's names and they'll never see each other again. I don't know, I, I feel like Juror 9 by the end, the older guy, 
kind of admires Juror 8 at the end and just wants his name so that when he thinks back to what happened, he's thinking of him as a name rather than a number. Whereas throughout the film, they were just numbers to each other. And I think by the end, Juror 8 is important enough to the guy to want to know his name and remember him by his name instead of as a juror. So the only other thing which I thought I might mention before I wrap up is I do think weather is really important to the film. I know it was mentioned a couple of times in comparison to other versions with weltering heat and opening windows to show how hot it is. But also what I find really fascinating is the way the weather changes. So yes, it's really hot, but then later on you've got the thunderstorms coming and you've got all the heightened emotions just as the thunder's sort of peltering outside. And I like the way we've got the weather changing so dramatically like that because to me it sort of mirrors the way the characters themselves change. That we've got, you know, 11 of them who are entirely convinced that this man is guilty, and yet it changes just as easily, if you like that expression, just as easily as the weather changes. Yeah, good point. I like that a lot. I agree, and I think one of the things that makes it such a cinematic film as well, even with its limited setting, is just how alive it feels. It, it uses all the, all the areas of the room. You, you have the weather outside, you have the backdrop, and, and most of the shots are in group settings. They're dynamic, you shift focus from character to character. It's just... Everything, like we said earlier, is so finely tuned. The power of Following Land really just is, as we talked about at the very beginning, its simplicity. The fact that we just get so drawn into the story, the debates, uh, the arguments, and the people involved in them. It's a really beautiful film, it's a powerful film, and these are just some of the reasons why this film keeps being seen by so many people until this day, and why it's held up as the classic it is. And with that, and with our final statements, I don't even think we need uh, to issue a guilty or not guilty verdict for 12 Angry Men. It seems that we all agree it's a great film, and we all agree we get drawn into these debates in in a film that's so good at it that it's even been used in classes to show conflict resolution. There's so many articles and videos, essays, etc. on what makes 12 Angry Men great. I hope our podcast episode contributed to that. So thank you so much for listening and uh, join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images. The official podcast of icmforum.com.